Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. Thank you for joining us for this sermon. You can find all of our sermons at holycommunion.net and our Facebook, YouTube, and podcast channels. Consider hitting like or subscribe. Consider sharing this sermon with others. It helps us to reach more people like you. We are so thankful to those who support our ministry. You can give today at holycommunion.net backslash give. In his last public address, Dr. King famously invoked this story from Numbers. Speaking to the striking sanitation workers in the city of Memphis, he preached the final sermon at Mason Temple. And eerily that night before he died, Dr. King said this, like anybody, I would like to live a long life Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Brother Martin knew something about the work of hope, about the work of faith. He drew on this story from Deuteronomy. He knew that the work of hope, the work of faith, had to be passed down. And so in that final sermon, that's what he was doing. He looked out at the young organizers, at the brave workers gathered in that church. A few months earlier, on the 1st of February in 1968, two garbage collectors had been crushed to death by a malfunctioning truck. Eleven days later, frustrated at the city's weak response, tired of the long pattern of abuse and neglect faced by black workers, 1,300 black garbage men went on strike. These workers earned a wage so low that most of them depended on food stamps for their family's survival. And still, the mayor refused to pay overtime for late-night shifts. The same month, in solidarity, about 150 local ministers formed the Community on the Move for Equality in Memphis, committing in a church basement to use Dr. King's methodology of nonviolent civil resistance, disobedience. And by the time February turned to March, local high school and college students, nearly a quarter of them white, were participating with the church folks and the garbage workers in daily marches. The fight dragged on for months. Police tear-gassed and beat protesters inside of a black church. King visited multiple times, urging the young organizers to remain nonviolent and persistent not to allow looting or rioting to dilute the civil action. And King preached this final sermon on his third visit to the city during the strike. He was weary. The marchers were weary. As Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel had said of marching with Dr. King in Selma, they had used their legs for praying, but their legs and their prayers were tired. And in this sermon, you can hear Dr. King trying to pass on his resolve, his hope. And you have to wonder, where did Dr. King get this faith? 
Today, as we prepare for Dr. King's birthday, his holiday, my sermon is about mountaintops and mentorship. Dr. King used his last public address to give people hope, to give them a vision of what was possible. The vision he often called the beloved community, justice and equity for people of every race. King knew for the movement to live on, he had to pass along the faith. He had to pass along the vision. And after all, King knew he had received this vision from the generation before him. King's father served as the minister at Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta for four decades. Much of our nation's remembrance will be centered there at Ebenezer Baptist tomorrow, where his dad was minister. But I want to talk about a different mentor of Dr. King's today, Howard Thurman. Now, Thurman graduated from Morehouse College with King's dad, with Martin Luther King Sr. Thurman was the valedictorian. He was also the valedictorian at Rochester Theological Seminary. Howard Thurman was the first chaplain of Rankin Chapel at Howard University, and he taught in the Divinity School faculty there. Later, he would serve as the dean of Marsh Chapel at Boston University and teach in that Divinity School when Dr. King was a doctoral student. King carried Thurman's most famous book, Jesus and the Disinherited, everywhere he traveled. They say that he used to carry it right next to his Bible. A key to Howard Thurman's understanding of Christian work in this world was a radical reinterpretation of Jesus. In the book, Thurman critiques the church, at least the church of his day, probably the church of today. Thurman believed any religion claiming to root itself in Jesus must have something to say to people with, quote, their backs against the wall. Central to Howard Thurman's understanding of Christ is his realization. Jesus was a member of a minority group in the midst of a larger dominant controlling group. Long before James Cone declared Jesus was a black man, Howard Thurman identified this with Christ. In Jesus' story, Thurman saw the stories of his own people and so many throughout human history. The book was first published in 1949, and as I said, his words were not the mainstream interpretation of Jesus. Indeed, in the years since the publication of Jesus and the Disinherited, many have found the words an antidote to the Jesus they were taught by the church. Episcopal priest and best-selling author Barbara Brown Taylor counts herself as one of the people who Thurman inspired to take back Jesus. She wrote, those who set off in search of new spiritual territory can feel like they are leaving Jesus behind, since church teaching has convinced them that Jesus belongs to the church and not the other way around. For Taylor, Howard Thurman gave Jesus back to those who are spiritual seekers, to those who would fight for justice and equity. If you have had to reclaim, reclaim Jesus for yourself, well, you stand in a long line of theologians and civil rights pioneers. 
Howard Thurman was captivated by this revolutionary vision of Jesus. This Jesus drove him for years to relentless work. I've already listed his academic accomplishments, but there was more. Thurman traveled the world. He led a delegation of black ministers on a six-month pilgrimage to India, learning, um, learning nonviolence from Gandhi, the Mahatma himself. Thurman left Howard University and Rankin Chapel to go and co-found the first interracial, interdenominational church in the country in San Francisco, and he served as co-pastor. But by his mid-30s, Howard Thurman was exhausted clinically. In order to keep going, he had to learn to slow down. Thurman began to take regular time for retreat and regular sabbaticals. Thurman wrote in a meditation for his new position as the chaplain at Boston University. What more? I ask with troubled mind. The answer? Moving stillness. Moving stillness. Thurman worked to mentor King and other civil rights leaders in this pattern of committed engagement and intentional time apart. Thurman is often known today as the mystic of the civil rights movement. Did you know the civil rights movement had a mystic? The old college pastor urged the organizers to take breaks, to slow down, to pray. He urged them to listen for the sound of the genuine in themselves to the sound of the genuine in the world around them, that which resonated, Thurman urged them to be mystics, to be moving stillness, because he believed God still speaks to us. The trick is to be still enough to hear, and yet still moving toward where God would lead. It's a tricky balance. I hope Dr. King would have been glad to hear a preacher use his holiday weekend to talk about this old mentor. If you know Howard Thurman, you can read his influence all over King, teaching Gandhi's nonviolence and Jesus' solidarity with those who struggle. You can often hear in Martin the wisdom, the faith, the vision passed down to him by those who came before. Howard Thurman was often asked who had taught him the faith. Thurman almost unfailingly told stories about his maternal grandmother, Nancy Ambrose, who had been born into slavery. He grew up listening to her stories of life before and after emancipation. Drawing on her experiences and his own growing up in the segregated South, Thurman describes the way of Jesus as a technique of survival for the oppressed. Think about that. Thurman says Jesus didn't primarily teach people about a way to heaven someday. Rather, Jesus taught us how to survive in the midst of bitter oppression when the world is not as it should be, when people are not treated as children of God. And when the church gets too powerful, it often fails to teach about Jesus. The powerful church tries to remake Jesus in its own image. Howard Thurman taught us the way of Jesus is a way to survive oppression, 
to work interiorly and publicly against the dehumanizing powers of the world. In other words, we don't get to the mountaintop by ourselves, let alone to the other side of the Jordan. All of us are here in person or online because we have been mentored in the faith. Mentoring matters for the mentee and the mentor. You can hear it in both readings today. In Deuteronomy, we hear that Joshua received wisdom because Moses laid his hands on him. In John's Gospel, Jesus has to be urged by his mother to perform that legendary first miracle. I always wonder what the wine would have tasted like. Mentoring matters. Sometimes we can summon faith for the sake of others that we couldn't summon if we believed that the faith was just for ourselves. Being a mentor can give you reason to keep on believing. Dr. King spent the last night of his life weary. He was tired, he was frustrated by the intractable conflict faced by organizers in Memphis, and frankly, according to his biographers, Martin was scared. He knew the threats on his life were serious. But he climbed into that pulpit because he knew the people needed a vision to keep going. Martin Luther King knew that he was the steward of a faith bigger than his exhaustion, bigger than his ego, bigger than him. King was assassinated the next day at the, on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. And just four days later, his widow, Coretta Scott King, led 42,000 people through the streets of Memphis in a silent march to City Hall. Eight days later, after all these months of protest, the mayor would finally concede to the workers' demands, recognizing the union and increasing the wages. And still later that summer, the union had to threaten another strike in order to get the city to follow through on the mayor's commitments. Moses never knew the promised land. King died knowing the journey had a long way to go. The work of justice, the work of dismantling systemic oppression does not belong to one singular generation. In the midst of frustration and exhaustion, will we find faith enough to pass down the history? Will we summon faith enough to envision the beloved community again? Will we continue the dream of a country where people of every race and religion have an equitable footing, security to worship without fear? This weekend, as we celebrate Dr. King, I believe it is incumbent to ask ourselves in the church, Will the next generation have mentors with courage enough to point them to the promised land?